So I have this problem, and it plays out in like a variety of ways, and I think it's tied to some obsessive-compulsive tendencies that I have. I, I, I think we all have some obsessive-compulsive tendencies, but for me, like I recognize them in some, some specific ways. I've always been a sidewalk counter, so, so when I walk, I count steps in between lines on the sidewalk. It's just a thing. Um, and then if they don't match up, I try to even that out. That's that's a whole other issue. But but this problem I have, I, I want to give you an example of how this works. So when, when my family and I travel, whether it's a vacation, a work trip, whatever it is, I have this thing that I hate, like despise eating at a chain restaurant. Like just despise. If, if that's what we got to do, I, I'm, I'm going to be unhappy. Like other than Chick-fil-A, Chipotle, those are two that have, they're, they're acceptable. But it is, it is really a pretty fervent goal of mine that we not eat at regular chain restaurants. And wherever we eat, I expect it to be really good food. Now, I, I recognize this is representative of some of the privilege that we have as people who came to adulthood in the tech boom of the early 2000s when all the apps were exploding, right? It was 2004 when Yelp was created and other apps like it. You know, those apps or websites where we search up whatever we want. I'm looking for Mexican food outside of Morgantown, West Virginia, or seafood in Pittsburgh, or Indian food in the Bahamas. It doesn't matter. Whatever town we're close to, and we search that out, we get the list. Um, and Yelp or apps like that will give us the best places, they'll give us reviews, they'll give us menus, user rankings, all that. So here's what I recognize. Prior to the 2000s, we couldn't do that. Like we ate where we were based on convenience, based on quickness, based on what we knew about those places. So if we were driving to the beach, we stopped at the McDonald's off of the interstate so that it was fast, you could pee and you could get back on the road. Or if you were fancy, if it was brunch time, Bob Evans, Cracker Barrel, whatever. But for us, as, as most people in this day and age, our technology allows for a bit more mining into the depths of good local cuisine. Now this is where my obsession starts to pick up, right? Because here's the flip side of my issue. I love those apps. I have found some incredible places to eat by using them. But they also create a problem because they are endless, right? I can search for hundreds of restaurants, thousands of restaurants, and the level of choices that gives to me on those apps present a couple problems for my my brain. My brain is a researcher brain. It's a collector brain. So, so the problems that emerge are this. First, I have an incredibly difficult time making a decision when it comes to where to eat. Most of my life, I don't have trouble making decisions, but that endless scroll can become all-consuming. I have literally been on work trips and walked around cities for hours trying to decide where to eat. And the second problem is I fear, like literally fear making the wrong decision. It is, when it comes to good food, paralysis by analysis. It's FOMO. What if I miss out on the better place, right? This is the levels where my brain has gone to when it comes to picking really good places to eat. I keep a list on my phone, a food log, just a note in my phone that is a log of the best meals that I've ever had. Some of them, they really are about how good the food was. Like I remember this place in Nashville. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I don't want to share the information. That's that's my vice. I like to protect that. I don't want it to get busy. I don't want you to mess it up, right? But I went to this place 
in Nashville where I had the best fried chicken of my life. I will not order fried chicken in most places, but this was incredible. Or this general store outside of uh, wine country in California. I was there with my parents and I ate this tri-tips sandwich that blew my mind, like literally blew my mind. If you don't know what that is, go Google and, and look at it. It's amazing. Or, or I had, uh, my girls and I were on a trip to South Carolina. We were at the beach and we went to this this restaurant and I had a, a grouper, a steak of, of grouper fish covered with just deliciousness that was some of the richest, most flavor, flavorful food that I've ever tasted. And all those places are in my list. I've got the name of the restaurant. I've got the date. I've got what I ate. But others, other other places in my list are, are less about the food and more about the space, right? They're more about the moments and the feelings around those meals. Like being with some friends on a deck overlooking the water. I don't remember what we ate. I just remember the atmosphere and, and we were sharing life and we were remembering so many good memories that we had and we were grieving pains of not talking for a while and, and catching up on where life had taken us and the pain that comes with that. Or I, I remember uh, being with my family, my, my, my girls and Carrie, and we were having sushi at this place in Ohio and um, she had this, Carrie had this this hard cider that was delicious. I had a beer that was delicious. The sushi was amazing. And then we just spent the rest of the evening laughing with our girls, just these amazing moments and atmospheres. So when I'm, when I'm forced on a trip to make a decision about where to eat based on an app or a website re- recommendation, I, I have all these things in mind. Like what if we find a place like those that are on my list. Won't it be magical? Will it make the list? Won't it be amazing? Or or what if we miss out and we could have created another memory? What if I could have had something that would have made the list but didn't? There's so much obsession, right? And so much regret and all this stuff that 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 factors in and I just I get it. I'm messed up. I need counseling. But we're we are all kind of in this space right now between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I think this is why I'm thinking about it. Most of us probably had a great family meal over the course of Thanksgiving. And we will probably share another one for Christmas. Like we will wrap up our year with these movements of food and tables and our families and friends gathered around us and they kind of bookend each other. But, but here's what I've been thinking as I walked through my, my own Thanksgiving. I didn't use an app to find that table at my mom and dad's house. I didn't obsess about who would have the best food and what would happen if I made the wrong choice. I knew where I would be for Thanksgiving. I knew where I belonged. I knew what I was bringing to the table and I knew what we would eat and I also knew who else would be there and what they would bring to the table and and not just their food but, but by their being there, I knew what they would bring. And, and you know these things too, right? Like you know Aunt Sarah is gonna bring her sweet potatoes. You know Grandma will do the rolls or, or Mom will bake the pie. And you, you also know that Uncle Joe's gonna bring the really loud political opinions. Your cousin is gonna bring the statements just to get Uncle Joe more fired up or your, your mom will kind of function out of her personality of trying to stifle the crazy throughout the day, right? Someone, someone would mention how someone else should get back to going to church, someone else would roll their eyes, whatever it is, you know what's coming at this table. And none of those things might make my food log, 
but across 42 years of life, I can tell you I have more memories of, of those food tables with family, with friends, than about just any other thing in my life. Those are, are my gathering places, right? The Thanksgiving table, the Christmas table, the birthday parties. And, and it doesn't take much to send me to those places, right? The smell of grandma's rolls, the taste of that sweet potato casserole, or the eye rolls that I've seen a thousand times. I read this quote not long ago, and I, I can't remember where or who it was, but it was something to the effect of this. It, it said, if you read the stories of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you read the stories of Jesus and you don't step away hungry, you're not really paying attention. I love that quote, right? The, the point being made is that Jesus spent this exorbitant amount of time in the Gospels, sitting at tables, sharing food, sharing drink, just the Gospel of Luke. Think about this. The Gospel of Luke alone, one theologian says that one-fifth of the sentences in that Gospel, one out of every five sentences, has something to do with a meal. That meals in this Gospel play this conspicuous role. Food and drink and Jesus are like always going together. And, and why is that? I would say because there's maybe nothing more powerful in our world than our taste and our smell senses, right? Than, than things that in, inhabit and, and, and absorb and consume our senses. And, uh, you know, with food, it, it, it starts with taste and smell. But our, but our meals also indulge the rest of our senses. We hear and we listen to the people that we share food with. We see the plates as they arrive. Don't you remember as a child sitting in the restaurant thinking that you were starving to death and looking perpetually across the dining room to see if your waitress was bringing your food and she would pop out of the kitchen with this tray and you'd just light up because it was your food and then she'd walk to another table and you'd want to throw something at her until she finally came with your food. Like, that was sight, right? Or, or, or we touch. We use the sense of touch, don't we? Think of the power of, of tacos. I'm always talking about the power of tacos, right? Building your own tacos, all those ingredients piled together, flavors merging, grabbing that shell and holding tight as the crunch and the sauce and the tang and the spice all come together in this ecstasy. Like, I'm telling you, tacos alone are like the roller coaster of fine cuisine. Sight and sound, taste and touch, and smell. This is the work and the experience of the tables that we gather around. Our tables are also <clears throat> the place of community, communing, communal life, right? I I've long said that, that if we're sharing food, I usually say if we're sharing tacos, but if we're sharing food, it is really hard for me to be pissed off at anyone else. Politically, religiously, socially, personally, as we eat together, we breathe together. We have to. We see each other and we find commonality. We care for each other. We love each other when we provide food to and with each other. Our meals are literal gifts. And this is why, this is what I've been thinking about. This is why Jesus was so controversial. And I think it's why Luke and the gospel writers emphasize food so often, because the meals of Jesus didn't match the meals of the culture. 
We know this, right? Like he, if you read the stories of Jesus or have ever been around religious settings, we talk about this all the time. Jesus ate meals with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with what the religious people would call quote unquote sinners. I always think of the church lady on SNL then, right? All that judgment, all that that condemnation. That's who Jesus ate with. He had unlikely guests and he made himself an unlikely guest. He showed up, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I must eat with you. And he would allow in the meals these countercultural things to happen. He would allow for interruptions mid-bite, realizing that a woman was pouring perfume over him. I would screw up a taco. I don't think I'd be happy about that. Mid-sip, feeling the tears of a woman grieving over him. Breaking bread as he taught one of the most important pieces of his beliefs, the bread and the wine, representing his broken body and spilled blood in that Eucharist meal. Fresh grilled fish on the shore with those who had moments before just felt lost because their rabbi was dead. Moments before felt shame because they had denied that rabbi when he needed them most. And now they're sitting sharing fish on a shoreline with a resurrected Savior. And, and, and this is the life that Jesus carried out day after day after day. And yet here's, here's what I know. And here's what I think the culture of Jesus' day was, was trying to force on him. Our, our tables can also feel like they have fences around them, can't they? Like, my guess is your Thanksgiving also carried the smell of history for your family, right? Like, maybe the conflict that's been quiet for years is still quiet, but it still fills the room with its odor. Or or there's grief. Grandma isn't there anymore, and, and the taste of that loss is still really hard to swallow. Or Or judgment, or pain or anger, all these things can can fill our tables just as much as the delicious food. And as they fill our tables, these things create fences and boundaries and barriers, and they, they build these things, these things we don't say, these conversations we don't have, the tension that we all feel, or the people that we don't invite. See, this was the problem that the religious people had with Jesus most frequently. They didn't like the people that he shared meals with. They didn't approve of his dinner guests. They didn't think they were the right people. They were out of bounds. A a prostitute at your cookout? Come on, Jesus. I worked in this church years ago, and I've worked in several churches, and every one of them had their own culture, their own feel, right? The The church itself was great. I have so many good memories there. Our kids were born there. It was formative in my life. Like, they were... They were a Bible church, right? That's what they were known for, what they prided themselves in, what they valued and described as their culture. We preach the word of God. And, and listen, I'm, I'm all in on that. Like, I want to be about that. I believe the scriptures are the word of God, and I try to teach from them every single week that I carry out my pastoral ministry. But, but the thing was, the culture that came out of this, unintentionally, I think, was somewhat boundary-building, like all the time, all the time. I heard these these volunteers, these leaders, these staff talking like, almost like private investigators about people we thought were getting involved in ministry or who might step up into leadership or teach or whatever questions and, and concerns like, well, do we know their theology? What do they believe about this? Do they agree with us? Where do they fall on, 
on this doctrine or this thing. And, and I remember this bugging me so much. Now listen, I was young, I was 28, I was arrogant. But I remember this bugging me so much one time that I got asked to speak to one of the Sunday school classes and, and this class was full of uh, much older adults. And I made this statement and I meant it so strongly out of love. But I said, I just am not sure that God needs us to be the heresy police. I know, so so stupid. 28 years old, speaking to the elders of this church and calling into question one of the very central cultural markers of their congregation. I get how dumb it was, and I would change it if I could. They were gracious, most of them. They were, they were humble and loving to me. Um, I, I realized my approach was not the strongest, but I gotta say, I still believe it. Like, I believe there are times, and there have been times historically and presently, where the church has to do what the scriptures say and guard against and call out false teaching. I'm all, I'm all for that. But I think when it becomes our 24-hour-a-day cultural marker, the very thing that defines our life together, that we sniff out like bloodhounds, the heretics, and we make sure that they know they don't fit— I think that's like putting fences around our tables. I think that's like building boundaries in places where they were they were really never supposed to be. I know this raises all sorts of follow-up questions, right? When do we call out false doctrine? Well, when do we deal with these difficult issues? How do we deal with these difficult issues? What if you see, how do we know who should be a leader? Who should, and there's so many more questions we could dig into, questions about programs and leadership and structures and systems and on and on and on. But but here's my thinking. Here's my question. How's it been working for us putting fences around our tables? Like How's that going? And I'll ask this at multiple levels for, for churches, for church leaders. How's it, how's it working putting up those fences? Like epidemically, and, and I talk about this so much in, in my book, Wonky, right? Like epidemically, pastors are burning out. This week, I have three friends that I've seen on social media who are, their churches, they were church plants that either shut down or they are pastors who are taking different positions. Just this week, it's epidemic, right? They're tired, they're worn out. We don't have enough volunteers. The church is in decline in the West. We. We know this. How's it working? How's it working for you personally, right? Just think about that, putting fences around these places. Are, are you happier? Are you more fulfilled? Do you feel better? Or does that loneliness continue to rise? Does that anxiety continue to build? See, here's, here's what I'm wondering. In, in the book of Acts, Right, the very start of the early church. Jesus resurrects, he ascends to heaven, he leaves the mantle and the mission on the apostles. He says, go, preach the gospel, go expand the kingdom of God. And these first disciples, what we see early on in the book of Acts, listen, they were not sitting down in meetings going, how do we defend our doctrine? They were sitting down in meetings going, how do we hire more waiters and waitresses? We've got a thing that's growing here that's emerging, and we need to feed them well. We need more tacos. We need more turkey. We need more whatever the Jewish people were eating at that day. They weren't sitting around pinpointing heretics. They were trying to figure out how to make their table bigger. 
the very first martyr, first guy in the book of Acts who's killed for his faith in Christ is Stephen. And he was a waiter. He was tasked with serving the people of God so that more could come, more could eat, more could show up, more could be present in these communal spaces. And so I've just been thinking about this in light of better stories and 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 what what I want to do with this, what I dream about for this. And and I, I thought I titled today's talk Turkey Tacos and Heretics. Because I think there's a lot to be said about the way we build our tables. And and let's take that from kind of a a, a, a miniature level up to a broad macro level, right? So the table in your house where you eat, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What does your rhythm look like as parents, as individuals, as grandparents, whoever you are, wherever you are, what is your table where you gather look like? Maybe parents, you get this, like it's just always busy. It's always hectic. You've got this is what ours looks like. You've got homework strewn across the table. You've got paperwork. You've got backpacks and packages and on and on and on. And to even consider sitting down there to eat, you're going to have to move some things. And maybe, maybe once a week you get to sit down and do that. And when you do, it's sweet and it's good and it's rich and your kids are there and oh, it's so rich, right? Or maybe your, your table feels just unused because there's so much going on. There's too much going on. And the better story for you might just be like, clean the table off. Like just let's clean our, let's just say no to some things next week and have a meal at home. Or, or your table might not just feel too busy. It might just feel too conflicted. Like the things that are going on in your marriage or your relationship or the hearts of your kids, it just feels difficult to even sit down across from somebody because like you can't breathe in those relationships right now. And maybe your better story is just to acknowledge that, like to acknowledge that before God and, and offer it to him in prayer or to like grab your spouse and say, hey, we haven't done a meal together for a long time. And I don't think it's about busyness. I think it's about us. Maybe we should just go out to eat and enjoy together. Like Maybe that's what that looks like. And, and then, you know, maybe your table, if if you're single, if you don't have that family structure or you've been through some broken family structure, maybe you're going, my table just feels lonely, right? Like my meals just feel lonely. I spend a little bit too much time alone. Well, what would it look like to take a really courageous step, especially if you've been burned in relationships and invite some people to your table? Like maybe, maybe just once in the next week, you would just say, Hey, come on over. Like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make some tacos. Oh, well, I don't cook very well. Maybe, maybe we'll just order out. Maybe we'll just pick something up. We'll DoorDash it. Whatever it looks like. Maybe you're bringing someone else to your table, and that just feels so scary, right? Because of past hurt or bitterness or whatever. Like whatever that is. Maybe we just need to name it. See, our tables matter. And then if we got a little broader and we said, hey, like churches, organizations, what does your table look like? Maybe we've put up a lot more fences than we ever should have. Maybe we've we've rejected some people. Maybe we've put up boundaries that 
the broken, the wounded, the lost around us would love to be at our table, but but they don't really feel welcome. I just want to con- continue to like harp on this that the prostitutes were really comfortable eating at Jesus's table. The tax collectors who were like most hated of anybody in the culture, they were really comfortable at Jesus's table. It was okay if it got awkward. It was okay if it got messy. It was okay if Somebody spilled some perfume. So friends, I, I want to invite you in this, this holy season, right? Bookends, Thanksgiving and Christmas, to like slow down, to look at your tables more often. And to just say like, what, what does this look like? What does this look like to kick down all the fences, to kick down all the boundaries? If they're personal fences, if they're relational fences, if they're political fences, social fences, whatever it is, let's just be about open tables. And yeah, we're going to get some heretics. We're gonna, it's going to happen. We might even be some of the heretics. But man, let's keep eating good food together. Let's keep finding ways to share a meal, to get that sight, that smell, that taste that touch, that sound, all in the same room, and enjoy it. I hope you have such good food this season. I hope you eat more than you deserve, and you dream big dreams about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God.